Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Dr. Elijah Bender about his research on 16th century Japan. This is episode 60 of Untenured Tracks. about the the big thing that I'm most excited about right now is to get a book proposal uh, out um, and I'm, I'm planning to do that uh, and submit this thing to the University of Washington Press which is a, a press that's doing a lot of great stuff in East Asian environmental topics mm-hmm. right now and um, so I, I have a have a manuscript that I'm working on that is focused on um, local resource disputes in late 16th century Japan and this this is an era in Japanese history that's transitioning from a long period of civil war and chaos and and uh, widespread violence into stability uh, and uh, sustained economic growth population growth in in the early modern period or the Edo period Tokugawa period so my, my research looks at the role that local resource disputes played in setting up or, and enabling that, that stability to, uh, to flourish. Mm-hmm. And so that probably that's the kind of the big thing. You know, I, I've not written a book yet, so I'm really nervous, but also very excited to get this book proposal out. Um, I also have a, uh, a chapter in an edited volume coming out. Uh, it's, it's a volume that is... I think tentatively titled "The Wood Age in Asia." Uh, it's it's going to be published by University of Washington Press, and it's a it's the result of a conference that took place a couple years ago at Yale through their uh, East Asia Center. Mm-hmm. And so we've got we've got a lot of it's actually not just East Asianists, but it's East Asianists. Uh, there's some South Asia, there's some Southeast Asia, and it's all on the theme of forest use in, in pre-modern uh, contexts. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you know, it sounds, it might sound kind of niche, but I think this is actually a really compelling and interesting uh, theme, and I'm so excited to be part of this volume because it's it's um, a big portion of the of the people who are working on this topic. You know, East Asian environmental, or I should say Asian environmental studies is still kind of growing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm just really excited to be, you know, with all of these great people who are doing uh, environmental stuff in India and Southeast Asia and China, mm-hmm. Korea, Japan. It's mm-hmm. really great. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Um, so for the book proposal, um, could you expand on, on this idea of local resource disputes? Like, like what types yeah. of resources are we talking about? What do the disputes look like? Yeah, so mainly, um, so I, I look at a place in, in central Japan, uh, it's sort of just north of, of Mount Fuji, and the, in that area, this is a, even by Japanese standards, this is a pretty uh, mountainous area, it's, it's way up at elevation, and so um, 
you know, there's a tendency to kind of view uh, pre-modern Japan as this sort of agrarian, uh, you know, bucolic uh, countryside. And that's not really the case uh, in, in the, the area that I study. And indeed, for a lot of a lot of Japan, it's it's more sort of mountain, uh, valley, and forested areas. So um, the the types of disputes that, or I should say, the types of resources that are uh, kind of at the core of these disputes is water and uh, forest products. Mm-hmm. Forest products that are used for things like fertilizer. For things like animal food, uh, and especially for fuel, um, to a lesser extent, building materials. You know, so there, there's a wide range of uh, products that that these local villages are, are reliant upon uh, uh, in the forest. And in terms of what the disputes look like, um, one of my goals with with my project is to uh, provide a more um, I don't know if nuanced is the right word, but uh, uh, maybe just uh, a, a different perspective on the, the conflict of this era that has been so, uh, so much of the focus has gone on the kind of uh, upper level um, geopolitical battles that are taking place between large like samurai warlords mm-hmm. who have their own territories and they're battling with other warlords for territorial supremacy. And what I like about looking at resource disputes is that it allows you to see that so much of the conflict that takes place in this era is actually at the very local level mm-hmm. over these really uh, um, necessary, you know, in this era, uh, resources. And so I'm kind of trying to, you know, just shift the narrative or shift the focus a little bit to say that here's what warring states era, that's essentially 16th century, Here's what warring states era conflict meant for most people. Mm-hmm. It meant: Do we have access to to these forest products? Do we have access to water? And water is mainly used for um, irrigation, but also just like production of sort of everyday items. Mm-hmm. You know, making clothes, making rope, making tools—all of that stuff requires water. Um, and then, of course, you know, for for consumption as well. So, not surprising. You know, water is an essential resource, but um, in in some ways that you might not think of. You know, it's it's not just for irrigation crops. It's not just for consumption. It's actually anything that you can think of that is that is produced, any kind of craft item that is made that requires water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in any case, um, that's that's what, what these uh, conflicts look like. Is it's primarily. Uh, between one community and another, so it, it's it's almost like hyper local in that sense, rather than you know it, it's not this big sort of geopolitical war for territory type stuff. It's who who are your your biggest rivals for access to forests, access to water, and so on. It's maybe you know the village right down the road, or it's it's the local samurai who has uh, has an estate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or it's it's maybe within. Within a community itself, mm-hmm. you have, uh, you know, um, some stratification where maybe there's more more wealthy elements who are uh, uh, consuming more than than the rest of the village wants them to, mm-hmm. or maybe there's a big Buddhist temple nearby that has you know vast mm-hmm. land holdings and property and influence, and and so 
it, it's these kind of negotiations within within the the region within the mm-hmm. locality that are most um, like contentious, mm-hmm. but but also most significant for for most people. Yeah, yeah. So, are they are they turning to violence? Are they turning to like property destruction? Are there are there protests against or some like maybe protest isn't the right word, but like some like uprisings against samurai um, who may be resource hoarding? Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think actually it's it's sort of all of the above, and <laughs> and uh, so I'm a historian, and you know the big uh, uh, historians were all about change over time, right? We we look at here's point A, and then something <laughs> changes, and there's point B. So the big change over time that that I'm uh, interested in is this is precisely the moment where these resource disputes go from being violent, mm-hmm. uh, uh, tending towards property destruction. Uh, you know, tending towards kind of direct conflict between the competing parties. Mm-hmm. And, and there are examples of, yes, local villagers, you know, rising up against a, uh, a kind of local bigwig samurai and booting them out or um, uh, eliminating them, uh, eliminating their lineage, that type of stuff. Uh, but in, in this moment, those disputes go from being like that to mechanisms um, that enable them to be resolved non-violently are, are developed at this time. And so when you get into the early 17th century, uh-huh. uh, which is the beginning of the Edo period, that violence gradually kind of tapers off. Mm-hmm. Things become more proceduralized. Mm-hmm. Things become more more um, formalized. There's, there's a means, there's a mechanism by which these local disputes can be resolved without the two parties directly coming uh, um, into direct conflict with yeah. one another. So was there, like, one one major crisis that that led to the development of this? I mean, it sounds like you're talking about a court system of some, of yeah, some sort. Yeah, I mean, part, it, is, it is a... Um, yeah, it has a lot to do with the development of, like, legal legal procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's state building yeah. on, on the kind of... Um, more, more fundamental level, mm-hmm. uh, and but to answer your question, no, there's not a single sort of turning point. So I, I look at this as this is a, a kind of long term evolution, mm-hmm. and I the the kind of turning point thesis um, would that would tend to favor a more kind of top down uh, explanation. Yeah, and and that that has um, traditionally. Uh, Kind of been the focus mm-hmm. with this era in in Japanese uh, history, mm-hmm. especially from the standpoint of like state building. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very you know warlords imposed these policies on their domains, mm-hmm. and then this bigger warlord gobbled up the other ones, and then he imposed this policy. Yeah. You know, and then this comes along. That um, that's I'm not singling anybody out there, but that's that's just mm-hmm. kind of a, a general trend that's that's been around for some time in in our field. What I'm what I think that the emphasis on local resources does is that it shows you that it's more of a long-term evolution that kind of bubbles up from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Because here's the fundamental problem that's mm-hmm. preventing uh, stability from, from taking hold. Mm-hmm. And, and once you're able to work this stuff out, these mm-hmm. conflicts can be resolved without, uh, without chaos, mm-hmm. without violence, at the local level, 
then that allows for um, larger and larger and more effective structures of of a state, essentially, mm-hmm. yeah. to be sure. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. I mean, and just, like, the ways that you can apply like your research to stuff happening i mean i'm i'm completely ignorant of of modern japanese society but i'm just thinking about like environmental issues in the states today um Mm -hmm. and in parts of europe today it it reminds me of a a conversation i had on here with a colleague of mine who is a political scientist who um has done research in romania um on romanian responses to fracking initiatives Mm -hmm. and how like romania has just been able to um just stop that <laughs> completely entire yeah. villages of people um showing up to to protest against shell and and like the big oil companies and just driving like almost literally running them out on a rail um yeah. on, on this village by village level because of concerns over the environmental impact of of fracking and and really just like this is this is what's going to happen to our water table and right. we're losing access like we're losing access to clean water and we can't we can't abide by that Yeah, so I mean that sounds that sounds fascinating, and it's it's exactly the kind of um, you know like parallels that I see with this with this work. Uh, The the Romanian situation, what it sounds like is that you've got a mechanism by which I don't know what that mechanism is, but you've got a mechanism by which a local community can really assert Mm -hmm. its uh, its rights, its privileges, its preferences. That's exactly the same thing that happens in this pre-modern. Japanese context mm-hmm. that that allows local villages to essentially be okay with you know with the emerging socio political order because they essentially gain a guarantor. In, this is in the form of uh, in this case it's the, in mm-hmm. the form of a big uh, samurai warlord who's sort of far away and mm-hmm. doesn't really <laughs> intervene that much. But that that entity, this emerging kind of proto state becomes a guarantor for these local communities yeah. that they are then able to use uh, to say, no, this is ours, this, you know, this forest, this mm-hmm. waterway, whatever it is, this is ours to use, and competitors are, are, are not allowed to encroach on that. Now, in, in, the, in the 16th century, the only way that they had to defend that was through direct action themselves. So it's basically you got to trot out the village militia and you know uh, essentially go to war to protect that right. Mm-hmm. But in, in the emerging socio political order, they gain this this sort of influential guarantor who's able to kind of act as a mediator, and that allows the the local situation to become a lot less uh, contentious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting too that. Uh, I mean, people will put up with a lot of stuff from from their governments, right? But it, as soon as as food and water, essentially, are are challenged, yeah. and we and we see how, I, I mean, the the one major responsibility of any government to to protect and provide those basic uh, human needs, and how poorly a lot of governments are set up to do that, or just how how quickly things can all fall apart, right? I mean, that's where that's what we're experiencing now. With everything right. and, and a government that seems to be, uh, like cartoonishly bad right. <laughs> at, at providing humane reactions to to this. Yeah, I would agree. That's a, that's a whole other avenue that I think this research. Um, it's one of the things that I'm fascinated about in this era is that you you sort of get to see 
like what what is the kind of most basic necessity? Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a another uh, Japan historian, Michael Adelson, who um, he's written about this in, in terms of what he calls basic government services. Yeah, which is essentially what you just described mm-hmm. that that kind of you know guarantee of of at least uh, uh, sort of fundamental necessities and access to mm-hmm. in whatever context necessary resources. Um, and what happens when the only the only means that you have of ensuring that is is kind of your own direct action? It's it's not a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what 16th century Japan is like. And then something changes, and and they're able to sort of break out of that. Uh, that's not to say the conflict goes away, but but um, the the sort of widespread violence and instability does go away. Mm-hmm. So what, what really fascinated me about that Romania example that you just cited is um, there's a lot of instances, uh, certainly in, in our contemporary world, where those outside interests, especially if it's a big corporate interest like Shell yeah. or something, basically has free reign to kind of come in and, and do whatever they want, right, in a local place. Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm, I'm convinced, <laughs> based on my study of, of pre-modern Japan, that there has to be some kind of mechanism for local communities to assert their prerogatives, yeah. or else everything is just going to fall apart yep. in in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, what that looks like is super different in pre-modern Japan than it is for contemporary Romania or contemporary United States or whatever, mm-hmm. but that's kind of, that, that's like the basic um, you know, Big macro uh, uh, insight that that I, I would kind of want to bring to the table. Yeah, yeah, about the importance of the local. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we see it with schools, we see it with police, we see it with um, even just like the structure of local of local government, right? Yeah, uh, and and different ways that that massive uh, corporate influences are sort of just buying their way in and nobody either n- nobody is really aware of it or nobody just bats an eye right like the some of the amazon stuff is is fascinating in yeah. terms of like the the level of surveillance that they are uh engaging in and and like the communities where amazon can can see what's happening on entire city blocks because of people installing the doorbells Right, <laughs> it's it's like kind of terrifying, actually, but nobody really like even even thinks about it. Or yeah, and yeah. I agree. I mean, this is it's really concerning because this is you know I'm not pretending to have like all of the answers or that there's just sort of one formula that you know yeah. local communities just get whatever they want. And, but we this is a conversation that I think we need to be having on a large scale mm-hmm. about what what is the appropriate relationship between. Uh, local rights, local privileges, and for lack of a better term, uh, external interests, or, yeah. or or you can boil it down to this sort of local versus central authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I feel just as an environmental historian that those issues are becoming more acute, certainly from an environmental perspective. Yeah. But all of the other stuff that you just cited are are other ways in which. They're becoming more acute. Issues of privacy, mm-hmm. right? Issues of policing, of schools, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's 
uh, I, I think that it's it's a big challenge yeah. for us now. And you know, my obscure little topic over here in, in pre-modern <laughs> Japan, I think, actually does have something to contribute to that, oh. despite the fact that it's a very different historical context. But mm-hmm. um, you know, there there's some there's some things that we can take away. Certainly, when it comes to uh, what are the underlying causes that allow violence to end and stability to prevail? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the case of late medieval to early modern Japan and that transition mm-hmm. is is a very interesting um, context to study this in. Oh, most definitely, yeah. And I think, I mean, that that we talked about that a little bit before we started um, the show. That I, I think a lot of what academia needs to survive is like de-siloing and, and being more vocal about our research outside of just publishing in journals that people probably aren't going to read. Uh, at least policymakers aren't aren't going to be uh, familiar with our work. And because I, I think just like you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Like I I kind of grow tired of that cliche. But when we're thinking about stuff historically and struggles that people have had against you know the powers that be, you know. The, the context changes, the specifics change, but, you know, the same patterns are there over and over again. Um, yeah. So what, what drew you to, uh, t- to Asian history and environmental history? Huh. Well, I have, it's sort of a, um, I, I got into East Asia um, in a very kind of cliche and slightly embarrassing way. <laughs> But you can you can lie <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> no, I actually I actually want to tell the truth here because I, I want I want everybody to embrace like whatever it is that got you into your interest, um, it's okay. And and especially when you interact with students, like whatever it is that you know, maybe there's something that is attractive to students about your topic that you find kind of annoying, but you know, it got them in the classroom. Yeah. And now they're there, and you can give them something that's even more interesting mm-hmm. than than the thing that got them there. So for me, I, I was a um, I'm originally from Missouri. I went to undergrad at uh, Missouri State University. It's in Springfield, southwestern Missouri. So you know, not not exactly a hotbed of East Asian studies, uh, but I I got into martial arts mm-hmm. when I was in college, uh, a and so I started you know to have this growing interest in East Asia. Um, I had long had an interest in the Pacific War because I, I had two grandparents who uh, uh, participated in that. And so um, I got really, you know, I was a history major and I thought, hey, this would be so cool to do, uh, you know, a non-Western type of history because mm-hmm. it, it was just so like eye-opening for me um, in, in the couple of basic East Asian history courses that I had. Um, and I, I just wanted to know more because it was Mm -hmm. like totally new. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, I decided that, um, I would try to go to graduate school and see if I could, you know, pursue this, uh, even further. I, I wasn't really confident in my ability to become a scholar or anything like that. So I, I sought out a program that had a terminal, master's degree and I, I basically picked uh, schools that had people whose books I had read and at the time a, uh, a, a really prolific uh, pre-modern Japan scholar named Wayne Ferris was at the University of Hawaii mm-hmm. 
and um, I got in there and, and Wayne took me on I did a master's degree I spent some time in Japan um, and then I got into a PhD program at UC Santa Barbara with Luke Roberts who's uh, another very well respected uh, pre-modern Japan historian and Luke had written a book on local history he's actually written uh, a couple books at, at this point but his, his first book was A Local History and, mm-hmm. and it was uh, you know this kind of in-depth examination of some uh, like political economy stuff in this place and um, so that really influenced me to, to I, I love to look at local history in like the global context yeah the, the, the implications of local history for the global and how the global affects the local yeah. that's like my big uh, interest mm-hmm. and Luke Roberts just happens to be really good at that kind of stuff. UCSB had a had a um, a really great environmental humanities kind of cohort there, in terms of some some professors and, and a bunch of really um, great graduate students. And so then I realized, hey, this this environmental stuff, it's it's sort of what I'm already doing with mm-hmm. my emphasis on a local history and. Um, I'd always been kind of drawn to like material type history, mm-hmm. so it resonated with me for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also realized that, um, you know, environmental humanities is only going to become more and more important. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, so one thing that that I like selfishly gained from doing these, having these conversations with people, is learning more about like the philosophy of their disciplines and their work. And so I was, I'm very yeah. intrigued to hear you uh, talk more about, if you can, uh, what you just mentioned about the relationship between the local and the global, mm-hmm. and how they affect each other. Could you could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, I mean, to to bring this back to my my specific context, you're you're in a in an environment where. Um, You've got you've got a kind of large scale change going on on the Japanese archipelago uh, writ large, but then there's a, an incredible degree of local variation within that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know how do you reconcile that? Like I, I there's there's a lot of value in in these sort of overarching narratives, but you also have to be really conscious of their limitations and and the limits of their utility, right? So. I think uh, this this sort of echoes what I already said, but what, one of the things that I'm trying to do with my with my project is is to show that it actually is the local changes mm-hmm. that add up and maybe look slightly different in 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 different contexts, mm-hmm. but that's the thing that allows for this large scale change to take place. Um, and just like for example. Um, in 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 my uh, region of Japan that I study, the it, it doesn't follow like the traditional periodization of you know here's era A to era B to era C. If, if you actually zoom in on the region I'm studying, it, it doesn't follow the, that periodization. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of trends trends that define era A uh, start earlier here mm-hmm. in this place. Okay. Trends that define era B. Um, end later yeah. in, in this place. You know, it's that type of thing, and so um, that that to me that just opens up doors for you to not only get a better uh, and more nuanced analysis of kind of historical change, mm-hmm. 
but also opens up doors for like alternative periodizations. And you know, some it's I think it's kind of sort of easy to roll your eyes at periodization, but that's something that is it really not only does it it define a particular subfield, but so many of our structures are dependent upon these periodizations, and I mean like academic structures. You know, we need a 20th century person to do X and Y. We need a pre-modern person to do this and that and the other. And you're talking about uh, uh, reducing our, our our silos, right? Mm-hmm. Well, to me, like periodization is, is is an area where we can really do some some work in that regard. Yeah, you know, to say that. Um, well, for example, what we've been talking about, right? We're talking about pre-modern environmental stuff, but oh, th- this terrific example that you cited about contemporary Romania. Yeah. Right. There's no reason that those things can't be in conversation with one another. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's almost frustrating. I mean, not almost. It's it's very frustrating, right? Because I mean, she is in political science. You know. Right. There. There's no way, really, that you're. That you two would encounter each other in the wild, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Because I, I just don't think, for for all kinds of reasons, I, I just I don't think it would happen. Um, besides coming on a dumb podcast. Yeah, I. The more that I've done this, like the the whole public scholarship thing is really starting to be like a a, a serious sticking point in my career and, and something that I'm willing to uh, to to really fight for. What turned yeah. into just a, a way for me to kind of define this this stage of my career post tenure and like what am I supposed to do now? I may as well find ways to give back. Has turned into like a growing crusade that I think a lot of academia is is kind of bull. And yeah. needs to be rechanged, and if I I'm willing to, to stick my neck out um, and do it. Well, I certainly appreciate it, and I'm <laughs> I'm thrilled that I you know came in contact with you just uh, just because of Twitter essentially. Yeah. Oh and yeah. There's an example of here's a connection that never would have happened you know without without people like yourself saying let's let's try to get more of this stuff out there. Let's mm-hmm. try to spark new conversations. You know, make connections that wouldn't happen mm-hmm. through traditional academic channels. Yeah, yeah. Twitter has been amazing, um, uh, an amazing way to network and just kind of grow my own career. I mean, honestly, I've learned so much from having these conversations with people outside of my discipline and, and even in. Right? I mean, I've had to become a generalist um, to survive at my institution, but yeah. um, just there's you learn very quickly that. You know, even though you you passed your comps and did a dissertation, that there's so much even in your own discipline that you are you are ignorant of. Um, so it's been it's been great, um, and simultaneously very frustrating, right? Because I, I find myself in a position where I wish I wish I could get some of that George Soros money and open my own my own kind of <laughs> think tank or something. To start hiring all of my friends that I've met, <laughs> and, yes, and, and just like because clearly, I mean, there's a need for everything that we do. I don't, I don't think university structures. Well, I know universities don't appreciate what their faculty do. Uh, I think yeah. we're seeing that now with all of the like straight up just monstrous ways that that schools are responding to the pandemic and, and throwing faculty on the front line and. And saying, you know, create a will, <laughs> you know, yeah. 
uh, and wash your hands. Good luck. Um, and I just, it just sucks. Like, like there's no, there's no better way to put it. Like, I, I think how we've been treated is really important, and the work that we're doing is so much more important than what a lot of universities are are doing. I think, in terms of their business models of, you know, uh, spring break and installing rock walls and <laughs> state of the art dorms um, yeah. to to be a resort for four years. Um, I think. I mean, this is this is not why we're here, but I, I really think that university is moving towards like a pro aggressive business model has just been such an abject failure across the I board. Agree. I mean, <laughs> I know that it's not the primary reason we're here, but uh, I think it's a it's a pertinent conversation, and I, I would just say from from my little corner of it right now, it's yeah. uh, it's disheartening in that the people who are doing the educating mm-hmm. at an institution of higher learning are, are the first ones who are getting um, getting let go, getting cut, getting the negative, you know, sort of consequences of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, not just the current crisis, but kind of, you know, the longer term uh, neoliberalization, yeah. right? Profit yeah. model, corporate model, business model of, of higher education. That's really disheartening to me, and I say that as a uh, as a humanities person, which um, you know we've for sort of for a long time been kind of uh, relegated to lesser importance, right? Mm-hmm. In the humanities, that oh, it's an impractical; those are impractical fields; they don't really do much for you. Um, so that's nothing new, but. What has kept me going as a graduate student and, and as a as junior faculty is that I I have just I, I wouldn't say overwhelming but um, I have always gotten just a critical mass of positive responses from students about the classes that I teach mm-hmm. and they say things like. My gosh, that was so interesting! I never expected to, to learn the things that I did, mm-hmm. or it opened up a whole new like way of thinking to me. Or, um, you know, that that was not what I thought history was all about. <laughs> but but uh, wow, uh, you know, now I'm like super into history. I've had you know students who say that you know after taking an East Asian class with me that. Basically, everything that you taught was like new to me, and and now, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to study abroad in Asia. You know, stuff like that. That's that's so cool. It it like affirms what what I have always believed, and what has been my experience, and that is that education actually is empowering, and it actually is something that like really changes your perspective, mm-hmm. and and can like shape your your worldview and enrich your life. That's what it's done for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's just so sad to see universities and colleges um, like not emphasize that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's yeah, and I, I think like, and I, I mean, I'm sure every historian, well, maybe not every, but I, I imagine you're going to agree with this that I, I think the way that history is taught. Um, in terms of just an emphasis on battles and dates <laughs> gives gives students the understanding that um, 
every his, every history class I take is going to be a history of war. I'm going to have to memorize which general fought which general, and where, and why, <laughs> and yeah. I just like jump from battle to battle and war to war, and that's not what history is really supposed to be, right? I mean, I teach a revolutions class now that because um, this is a, a topic I've I've gotten really interested in um, how how and why these things happen. And with every revolution I teach, I stop right at the war, the war part of it. So we just cover like the build up to it. Here's yeah. all the the sort of the jockeying for position and the letters going back and forth across the Atlantic or across France or whatever. And then uh-huh. war breaks out. Like okay, let's move on to the next one because I don't want to. You've he- you've heard all the battles before. There's nothing I can yeah. add there. You know, George Washington wins in the end. Spoilers. Right. <laughs> 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 you know, I this is, this might seem like for for my fellow historians and fellow humanities people, it might seem like this sort of tired old cliche. But I still see this semester after semester, and I'm talking about a critical mass of students who that's that is indeed what their perception of history is. is yep. I don't like history because I had to memorize a bunch of names and dates. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like I don't know who taught you that. I don't know if this is from elementary school or from uh, high school or maybe it's because of the History Channel or something, but uh, when they come to my class and a lot of other people's classes who, who I know, it, they it's like, oh, wow, history is not those things. It's asking questions. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, diving into... Uh, uh, pieces of evidence. It's it's a way of thinking about the past, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a way of thinking about the past that then sheds light on your own perspective. And mm-hmm. you can sit there and, and go, oh my gosh, I never thought about this thing because I had totally just taken it for granted, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my historical context, in my cultural context. And now studying this in the past, it's like I've actually realized that, uh, you know, this thing is not normal or not good or, or is good or what you know whatever it is yeah. it leads to like this this ability to like self reflect yeah yeah i mean it's you're you're exactly right i mean it's it's opportunities and challenges to to think about and, and try to better understand you know your own story right and how do you fit into this this lar- this infinitely larger and more intricate puzzle, you know. I mean, even just doing like, I've, I've gone back and forth on encouraging students to try to do like genealogical histories, and I, I understand that for for many of my students, that's not really a possibility. But trying to find something to approximate that, um, just to to help them understand, um, for better or worse, how they got to where they are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I I know that, I mean, and even with that too, it's frustrating because of like the the propagation of like 23 and me right where they may not think their their personal history is just simply like I'm 23% Irish and and, and right. that's and that's that and not really thinking about like what does that mean and and what was that history of that part of your family background and and all that yeah. um so uh let's talk more about your classes um how, have you been able to bring in your research into your classes at all yeah, I think I think that I've done a fairly good job of doing that. Um, the the main avenue is through uh, environmental studies. Mm-hmm. So all of my classes, I, I teach a huge range of classes. I'm, I'm one of the uh, 
sort of, you know, wears a lot of hats type of people on my campus. Um, but all of my classes share this sort of common core environmental theme mm -hmm. where we're, you know, we're dissecting these societies in different historical contexts and in particular looking at what do they do to their environment and what does their environment do to them? Mm -hmm. You know, so looking at the ways in which a given society manipulates its environment and why and, uh, you know, how that influences the hierarchy and sort of, you know, who's whose vision of the environment gets to, like, dominate, mm -hmm. you know, whose vision of the layout of physical space and the use of resources and the allocation of surplus and stuff like that, you know, that, that gets you into all kinds of examinations of, of power and um, institutions and so on. And so I, I've been able to, like, infuse that in, in through all of my classes, even in my, my big survey classes. I think it's something that students appreciate these days mm -hmm. because there is a big interest in environmental issues. Mm -hmm. There is a big interest in you know, the relationship between environment and society. Yeah. Uh, some of the most contentious debates in, in contemporary uh, uh, in United States society are, are over environmental issues. Yep. Some of the most intractable stuff mm -hmm. is about land use, resource allocation, you know, uh, endangered species protection versus mm -hmm. uh, uh, whatever it is. So um, I think I've done a good job with that. And then uh, in terms of the kind of local versus global stuff that we talked about, the resource dispute stuff, I, I have a, a lot of um, specific examples from Japan uh, and from East Asia, uh, a sort of writ large, that, that I try to incorporate into, into classes mm -hmm. um, that you know, give, give students something to kind of dig into um, which um, I think has been pretty successful. You know, it's that that's been a very good avenue for me to um, like take a class that's not necessarily East Asia focused, but then allows us to talk about pre-modern Japan. You know, and I think that the more that we can do that as teachers, the better. Because gone are the days where you know I get to just sort of sit in my right. Uh, 16th century Japan silo and say, but now I'm going to teach you about, you know, you came to me for a semester class on, you know, uh, Warring States Japan. So here it is. You just can't do that anymore. But if we can reconfigure and, and you know, rethink the thematic content of our research, then that opens up doors for you to say, you know, here, here's the big picture thing that we're talking about. Here's an example from this place and that place that I know a little bit about. Here's an example that I know a lot about. You know, so let's dig into this for a second. And that, I think that's worked really well for me. Yeah. Students like it because it, it allows them to like contextualize this stuff uh, more thoroughly. Mm -hmm. And then they also feel like they really got to like dig into the meat of something where it's not like, oh, I just read a textbook for a semester. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even, even reading it maybe is. <laughs> we, we hope. <laughs> We hope, right? Right. I hope you read the textbook. I think you might read the textbook once or twice for a whole semester. So, um, how do they yeah, that, that, that balance between like the the big picture, but then the specific example, sort of grounding it with a really in depth like dive into something? Yeah, you obviously can't do that all the time. Yeah, but if you can pick and choose 
like one or two that you do that with every semester, I think it works really great. Or at least it works great for the way that I've set up my classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do your respondents? How do your students respond to the um, to the East Asia stuff specifically? Like, are, is there? I, I would imagine, and I'm, I'm just thinking about like my students and how they might react to to different subjects. Is there? any sort of like hesitancy um, because it, it may seem so far away and so long ago to students is there is there a reluctance to engage in the material or um, maybe some types of like stereotypes that they bring bring to it that you have to try to disavow them of yeah I get I get kind of um, it, it's sort of a, a polarized response to that because uh, in, in on the one hand the pre-modern East Asia stuff in particular is sort of self-selective. So you have a group of students who are just really drawn to that. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're already super into it because um, sort of like me when I was an undergrad, it's like, I never got to learn this stuff and it's really cool and interesting to me because it's like totally new. Yeah. So you have that group, but then but then you do have the group that, as, as you suggested, that it's maybe a little bit reluctant or thinks uh, this is just so obscure yeah. or relevant or whatever. Um, and the the way that I uh, I, I think I've, I've had some success in, in kind of breaking that down mm-hmm. is um, again to focus on the uh, sort of environmental implications of, of my research. I mean that you know I am an environmental historian. I happen to do pre modern East Asia, mm-hmm. but if you present to students that, you know, we're going to analyze this society in terms of what are what are the conflicts over over environment that play out here? Uh, what are the power structures that determine how those conflicts are going to play out? Uh, what what are the you know necessary resources that, that people are convinced absolutely have to be uh, um, preserved or or used in a certain way. What are you know issues related to resource scarcity mm-hmm. or distribution or you know population pressure? Guess what? All of that stuff is around even in pre-modern East Asia. Mm-hmm. And so you know they see that and then they I, I've had numerous times where it's like that light bulb moment. Yeah. You know where some students like, oh my gosh, I, I thought that all of this stuff was like new and contemporary and you know just an artifact of the Anthropocene mm-hmm. but but it's like no this is you know I mean we're talking about like Han China mm-hmm. and and it's it's all of these same issues yep um, so that that's been you know just I, I sort of lean on my own uh, uh, specialty there but I have had success with with doing that that sounds really in, ter- in terms of like the misperceptions yeah um, I, I should mention this because Again, it, it sounds like a tired cliche, but it's really true that there's there's a high degree, at least where I teach, which is you know upper Midwest. There's still a high degree of Orientalism that that students bring to the table, just in terms of their understanding of, of East Asia as sort of the mystical Orient or the other, you know, uh, um, and it's it's fun to kind of break that down. I think it's. Um, I'm able to offer them something that's even more interesting than sort of their their preconceptions, yeah. and so then they leave my class. Like this happens a bunch with the samurai history class that I teach. You know, 
we start off, we spend like the whole first week just talking about, here's all the stuff that we know about samurai. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it's like, okay, well, basically none of that corresponds to the historical. <laughs> but then, but then in, instead of just, just saying like, okay, so there you go. Pop culture is garbage. Uh, uh, that's it. You know, end of class. Don't believe anything you hear about samurai. No, that's not where we end. What, what we do is that allows us to start then examining how and why do we have this big disconnect then? Yep. And then that opens up just a whole bunch of interesting doors where you can examine the actual historical material. You can examine like the the function that these narratives are playing, mm -hmm. and these you know the, these pop culture things. Like, what are they actually doing? Why do we find them so compelling? Uh, and I, I feel like in, in the case of of like samurai history, you get to have your cake and eat it too because you can enjoy the actual history, and then once once you have a deeper understanding of of that, you can also consume and enjoy the samurai media, mm -hmm. you know, which is um, uh, sort of fantastical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, my friends in criminology and criminal justice who may be listening to this right now probably screamed. <laughs> and thinking about uh, because we have to do the exact same thing not with samurai but the first week of criminology or intro to cj or whatever is you know this is not what the police do <laughs> this is yeah. you are not going to be batman you are not going to be a profiler you are not going to be able to walk around the street and be able to, to identify terrorists um based on how they are dressed uh it doesn't happen anywhere um, it's a complete fiction. You're not going to be in car chases. You're you're not going to be in a gunfight in all likelihood. Uh, you're going to yeah. be doing a lot of paperwork and a lot of collecting fines and fees and long hours sitting, you know, in the median of some dusty old <laughs> freeway somewhere, <laughs> waiting for the the one speeder to come by or the one drunk driver to come by at three in the morning. That's that's what you're looking yeah. at as cop, um, right. and just seeing the light go out of their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought I could be a profiler for the FBI. I thought that was going to be my future. Like if, the, if the FBI hired every every kid who wanted to be a profiler, <laughs> they'd have a budget you know bigger than the Department of Defense. Um, I'm sure that I'm sure that 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 um, uh, you know exists in a lot of different disciplines. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, and you know it's it's something that. Um, I think it's really important, and it, it loops back to what I was saying earlier about how education is is a tool of empowerment, and it mm -hmm. actually, like, there's this line from, so I'm a big Star Wars nerd, uh, but in A New Hope, Luke is training with the, the little uh, laser remote on the Millennium Falcon, mm -hmm. and, you know, he's trying to block the bolts with the lightsaber, and it's really the first time that he's, like, learning to use the Force, right? You know the scene, right? <laughs> I have I have a chapter coming out in a crim theory book, uh, Star Wars and uh, critical criminology. So I, yeah, I have. Wow. So over to my left, I have a wall of of Funko Pops or Star Wars stuff, posters around. Um, I want to talk about. I mean, I'm not recording the video of this, but but your R two D two thing in the background. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, the podcast go. has turned into Elijah and I basically being <laughs> little boys again to show off toys. <laughs> yeah, um, I got Lego so stuff everywhere. My point, yep. my point with this Star Wars reference is that um, <laughs> uh, Luke eventually uh, successfully blocks uh, a laser bolt, and Obi Wan 
he says he says to Obi-Wan, you know, I did feel something. And Obi-Wan says, which I, I think is like one of my favorite lines in the entire saga, he says, that's good. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Yep. And I feel like that's that's what I want to be as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel in, in not so many words, some students have said that about my teaching, and it's like the best feeling that I've almost ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, going back again to the, this idea that, like, what, whatever your preconception is, okay, it's probably not uh, accurate, but learning about the real stuff, for lack of a better term, yeah. the real stuff, yeah. like, it's actually more interesting and it's more compelling than you even thought it was. Yep. Yeah. It's that larger world that you didn't even know was around you this whole time, and now you're able to actually engage with it. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, it's like aspirational for me. Yeah. Oh no, there's. Uh, I'll send you the link to it. There's a, a fan made Obi Wan Kenobi like tribute video that I, I have watched dozens of times at least for like inspiration <laughs> to try to get through <laughs> to get through everything going on. He, yeah. He's by 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 far uh, he and the relationship between him and him and Anakin in the Clone Wars is I think my favorite thing about about Star Wars. Um, yeah. By far, I'm, I'm so excited for that show. But this is not a Star Wars podcast as much as I, I that for the Star Wars I, podcast. as much as I wish it would be. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> I uh, yeah. Um, so uh, the last thing that uh, we should talk about, um, you had mentioned wanting to talk about, um, is uh, the ways that that junior faculty and, and graduate students are being affected by everything um, going on, and it's kind of something we've we've hinted at and danced around throughout the last hour or so um, ways that the academy is kind of failing us as faculty um, and, I, and I think in a lot of ways failing our students um, uh, as far as you know pandemic policies are concerned but even even in the run up to this right I, I think everybody understands that the pandemic accelerated things that were already happening um, and bad decisions that universities were making more and more of have just been um, increasing because of the pandemic. Um, and so I, I know that you wanted to, to say, um, to talk about this a little bit, so I will uh, give you that opportunity now. Yeah, um, I think, well, first of all, I really, I, what you just said, the pandemic accelerating uh, things that were already happening, um, that uh, is... Part of my research deals with natural disasters, mm-hmm. so I also I also do a lot of that with um, not just my my project, but um, in in my class it's a lot. It's like do kind of disaster stuff, disaster response, crisis, and how that affects um, you know sort of underlying tensions mm-hmm. within a society. And that's like one of the big you know. There's a lot of literature about this that um, crisis accelerates. Uh, makes worse, exacerbates problems that are that are already there, or mm-hmm. you know things that are sort of bubbling below the surface. All of a sudden, boom, become super urgent. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I know that there's a lot of just really great research in, in kind of disaster studies uh, writ large right now. That is like there's so many terrific insights in this field that are like directly ap- applicable to what's going on right now with COVID. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, anyway, just sort of shout out to all the all the disaster studies people. It's it's a there's some really incredible literature out there. Um, 
but how so one of the one of the things one of the crises that this has accelerated in, in higher education is that the the people who are going to experience the brunt of the COVID related cuts uh, are, are going to be junior faculty and, and graduate students. Mm-hmm. The, the job market has already been just brutal, yeah. right? For for new graduates since since two thousand eight, mm-hmm. it's only going to get worse. That means fewer and fewer opportunities for uh, new PhDs, mm-hmm. ABDs. And then even lucky people like myself who had a tenure track job. Um, I got my job in 2017, and and it's going away. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's we're going to be the first people, junior faculty, that is, who are who are being cut. Mm-hmm. Um, that has implications for for others. You know, I, I think about friends of mine right now who are on postdocs or who are on. Visiting, uh, visiting positions, and if like there's just there's not going to be anything for them. You know, they've put in the work, they've put in the time, they've they've um, gotten this opportunity right to to continue their career mm-hmm. through some postdoc or some visiting position or an adjunct position, and there's just there's going to be nothing for them yeah. on the other end. Um, it's really sad. Because those people, not only in that sort of abstract sense, represent the future of our disciplines, mm-hmm. but these are also people who, in a lot of ways, are the most flexible, mm-hmm. are the most resilient, have, have done the best job of contextualizing their research in, in different ways that, that speak to this kind of broad relevance. Mm-hmm. I think that that's just a, you know, our generation, I'm sort of lumping you in with with, with my generation because I think you're, you're on the younger side of things but um, of necessity that, that's what we've done right because mm-hmm. um, you know we can't we can't just sort of stay in our little corner right um, and I think that's good I think it, it's actually like raised the bar a lot and it's led to a lot of what everybody wants right which is interdisciplinary stuff collaboration right mm-hmm. big old uh, uh, research agendas that, that address large-scale problems. Well, the, the people who are the best at doing that are the ones who are being left behind. Yeah. The ones who are, are being cut, who, who are not being get, given jobs, and who are being just kind of sort of set adrift. Yeah. People leaving the field because they just they just don't want to be on this, you know, carousel anymore of, yeah. of postdoc A, B, C, and then, you know, it, it's just very sad and it's... Uh, it's really raw for me right now because it's just it's just happening. Yeah, um, yeah. I haven't I haven't talked about my career much in terms of like how I ended up where I am. But so I I I took two years off between undergrad and grad school. So I I finished college in two thousand two, um, and uh, was just kind of like dumped out into the world. Um, I didn't have any kind of like capstone project or anything. Um, I, did, I didn't go to my graduation. It's just like, okay, well, like I finished college. I remember calling my mom after my last class and being like, I'm done, I guess. <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I took two years off and I bounced around from like temp job to temp job. Um, I ended up working at Target unloading trucks um, in the swing shift. And then I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> this is not, this is not for me. And so I picked, I, I went back to school and I picked a school that was on the bus, on the bus route from my apartment um, Eastern Michigan, 
And uh, while I was there, um, like some people in my class, because Eastern attracted a lot of students who were like non-traditional, mm-hmm. so people who worked in Detroit who were taking master's classes to um, to get a, a raise or a promotion at their jobs. Um, and, and Eastern's program was a master's terminal too. So my plan was to uh, to get a master's in criminology and then and then start thinking about law school again. And I remember a guy in my class was like, you're good at this. You should think about being a professor. Like, well, I'm, I was like a, a B plus, well, let's be honest, like a B minus student in undergrad. Like, I'm not a, a professor. Like, I'm I'm just some dude. Um, and so when I, so I went for my PhD and uh, had lots of interviews. I never was, never was picked. Um, spent two years on the market. And then when the last job rejected me, which I was, I thought was a sure thing. It was a, the best interview I'd had. Um, my wife and I decided just to pick up and move to Florida, just randomly. We had friends down there, um, mm-hmm. so I, I called every, or I emailed every department in like a hundred mile radius to be like, "Hey, I'm a new PhD. I'm just looking for adjuncting gigs. If there's anything you can do." Um, yeah. And somebody at uh, the University of Tampa had resigned <laughs> the day before. Um, and, wow. they, and they were desperate to fill that spot. And so I, I waltzed into a visiting position that gave me the teaching experience because th- that was the knock on me um, mm-hmm. on the market that, that landed me this gig at Wilkes. Um, yeah. So I, I could very easily have been yeah. been drummed out. Um, right. it's, I'm extraordinarily lucky to, uh, to be here, um, which is like where this, pro- this, this podcast project was born out of, right? Like I... I recognize that I'm very lucky and other people um, need a boost. And I, I think the academia is insanely too competitive. <laughs> uh, I, think that's, I think that's one of the ways, and it's, and it's kind of ironic too, right? Like so many of us teach about Marx and Marxism and we don't apply it <laughs> to our own <laughs> workplaces. They go yeah. in class and be like, yeah, it's really important for workers to unify and, and to realize when they're being manipulated. And then we go out and we play right into the hands of administrators and, and boards of trustees that are, are treating yeah. us as pawns, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, it's uh, just so I maddening. Agree. Well, invite me back for the Marxism podcast, too. <laughs> I would love to talk about all of those issues. Oh, yeah. No, I... Yeah, so I just recorded a bunch of teaching and scholarship in the pandemic panels, and so I've been thinking of, like, I, I really want to do more more panels um and like record them as as video podcasts so i can put them on the youtube page too so yeah maybe that's one that we can we can think about i i can and that's definitely one that we can do an interdisciplinary one on um find people who want to talk about the relevancy of of critical work and and marx and his legacy um and, and even like the anarchist and socialist movements in the U.S. and how how might it apply today? Just pick a random period in time. How might it work today? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, thanks so much for for taking time to come on, Elijah. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it was been a real pleasure to meet you and get to know you a little bit. And um, I would uh, I'd be. I'm going to certainly keep an eye on, on the podcast and, you know, uh, let me know if, if you want to talk more about Star Wars, Samurai, Marxism, uh, you know. <laughs> hey, Andy Wilzak again. So 
I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at UntenuredTracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this and I'll see you next week. Bye.